Hi there and welcome to Inside Rugby League, the podcast brought to you by the Yorkshire Evening Post. I'm Richard Byram and joining me again on the line this week is my colleague Peter Smith. Peter's the Chief Rugby League Writer for the Yorkshire Evening Post and uh, sadly still no games to report on Peter. Sadly not, um, Rich, and, and from what we've heard from the government this week, no games to report on until at least June, which isn't a surprise to anybody. No. Um, and they've confirmed that when sport does return, or if it returns in June, uh, it's going to be played behind closed doors, which, again, it isn't going to shock anybody, but um, raises some interesting questions for the league. Um, as we've said on, on this podcast before, possibly manageable for, um, for Super League, but not so much for the Championship and League One. been speaking to a few people in the lower divisions this week, um, including Hunslet coach Gary Thornton. Yes. And, um, he's getting rather pessimistic about the prospects of any play um, again this season for the lower divisions. I think it's it's difficult to see how playing behind behind closed doors could work for clubs that depend virtually entirely on on gate income. Yeah. They still have to pay costs and they won't have anything coming in. So um, the prospects look a little bit bleak for our um, for our lower division sides at the moment. They do. Um, somebody suggested to me actually last week that perhaps it would be time for those two divisions just to close their seasons down. Uh, rather than trying to battle on um, with the, you know, like part-time status. And you say that they are so heavily dependent on people coming to the game and buying food and drink and other bits and pieces, programmes and so on, that, you know, would, would it be worth just keeping on, keeping on hoping that something's going to happen that probably won't? That's exactly right. Uh, Gary Thornton's fear is that, if the shutdown goes on for much longer, there isn't going to be time to fit the season in without giving the teams a decent break before the start of next season. And he thinks they won't want to disrupt two seasons. So the the most likely option is to um, is to just make this year null and void. In, that might make some sense in League One because they've only played two matches. So you can see the sense in perhaps calling that off and then starting next year as planned rather than disrupting this season and disrupting next year as well but as we say every week it's a very difficult position for um, for everybody concerned that clubs are desperate to be playing but just realistically it's just looking less and less likely that that will happen for the lower division clubs I think um, we can expect to see Super League back this year but quite in what form that will take remains to be um, remains to be seen. As the government have said, it looks like it will be behind closed doors. And um, as I've mentioned on this podcast in the past, I suspect one thing they'll look to do is maybe play multiple games at one venue on the same day as a, a way of cutting down the costs. I spoke to Daryl Powell about that earlier this week, and he thinks that will be a sensible idea, and I'm, I'm sure that's something they're looking at. Yes, I saw that interview with Daryl, and it was a an interesting point that was made. Um, you know, as you I think pointed out in the article, the Leeds ground in particular has got the facilities where more than two teams could be based at the same time, and you'd think maybe somewhere like the KC Stadium in Hull could probably cope with double headers. Um, possibly the I don't know the Wigan ground as well, perhaps over in Lancashire. And, 
the Warrington well, ground, maybe that there are modern grounds, the, aren't there, with uh, with plenty of new facilities and so on. I think the obvious one is is Headingley, um, which is with the rebuild can stage more than one game in a day. We've already had one double header there this year on and round one of Super League when Toronto played Cass um, before Leeds played Hull. They've got two separate sets of changing rooms for um, for the rugby league side. There's a, a warm-up area that can be used as a changing room. There's a standalone, just one changing room as well. And there's access to, to um, facilities on the cricket side, which they used last year. So they could, they could stage it there. Yes. I think the sensible approach might be to perhaps play um, one set of matches on um, maybe on say on a Friday at Leeds and another set of matches on the Sunday at somewhere like Warrington or Saints. I think ideally you'd want to play it on a ground that is a, a rugby league owned ground, which is another advantage of um, of Headingley. Yeah. And um, and would apply to, to clubs like um, well not Hull obviously but um, Warrington and Saints on the other side of the Pennines would fall into that category. I'm not sure about whether what the full extent of their facilities are, but they've staged double headers before as well in um, in lower tier competition. So I, I think it's practical. Everybody's in one place. It makes things easier on a health and safety level and, and cuts down on the costs. So I, I just think that that is a sensible way to go. I mean, you could play, you could play, matches um on a friday afternoon yes i would have thought if there's no if there's no crowd in there you don't have to kick off at um at quarter to eight in an evening do you, you could play no. through the day so uh, so that's something i know they're looking at yeah it's a point i hadn't thought of but it's a good one you've made there that you know with people still generally at home and no particularly tight time constraints other than obviously getting the games played uh, you could have, you know, almost magic weekends every weekend, couldn't you? With three games one day, and three games, uh, excuse me, three days, three games a couple of days later, but they wouldn't necessarily all have to be in the evening. You know, you could play afternoon into the evening and so on. Yeah, um, I imagine you'd at magic. There tends to be sort of two hours, two and a half hours between games, and it gets very tight. But you could play at, at I don't know, noon. Three o'clock and um, seven forty-five, or three o'clock and seven o'clock, or something. If yes. if necessary, obviously Sky would have a say in this. They might want one game to be a, a quarter to eight kickoff, but the others could be at any stage during the day, yeah. and then you have time to sort of socially distance people um, coming and going, going for the um, from match to match. So um, I think that's workable. It's not ideal, is it? Because clubs obviously want want income but they're not going to get it from from matches behind closed doors if that's what the government insists on no so won't i don't think losing home advantage would be such a an issue if crowds aren't um aren't allowed in so it, it just seems to me it seems a sensible way forward and a way that that would give the, the governing body and some control over what's going on it does and, and as you've pointed out in the past as well it, it eases the burden on um the other things like 
you know, uh, ambulance service and, and doctors and things like that, if they were all, all knew they were going to be there all for one day for three games and so on, wouldn't it? That would help as well. Yeah, exactly. Rather than having to, to cover, for example, Headingley, um, Bellevue and the Jungle, yes. they're all being in one place. Um, it, it, I just think that's a sensible way forward. One interesting interview I did read uh, today in our sister paper, um, Adam Pearson, the Hull owner with Dave Craven, our colleague, saying that he'd like to see some form of um, crowds back watching the game from the 1st of July, which seemed a bit optimistic, to say the least. Mm, I can't see that happening, and unless unless he knows something we don't. The government have said, I can't remember the exact wording, I don't have it in front of me, but the um, the government's guidance that was issued on Monday basically said it'll be playing in front of crowds yes. will be a long way down um, a long way down the track I, I can't see it happening in, in July just how how would it work I don't, I, I don't know how you can socially distance No, I mean, his, his suggestion was that the KC Stadium was big enough that they could, obviously you wouldn't be expecting a normal full size tall crowd in I don't think but there would be a capability to have people spread out within the stands around the ground. But even then, they've still to go to the toilet, they've still to pass each yeah. other, they've still to exactly. maybe be queuing at the bar for some food or, or for some food or whatever, or outside at the turnstile. It, it, it's still bringing a lot of people into close contact with each other, no matter how hard they try to avoid it. It is, and that's what that's one thing that is, is not likely to happen, isn't it? So, I'd, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, he's just keen as anyone to get income through the gate and you can't blame him for that but I, I just can't see how that is going to be um, how it's going to be realistic it's going to come down to what the government permit and they're not they're not going to allow that I, I don't think um, but as we've said before a lot is going to depend on what football do yes. what the premiership does I think that's going to be the test case when they come back Everybody in sports like rugby league are going to be looking at what they do and how it works, how testing of players works and, and all that sort of thing. And that will probably determine what happens in, in rugby league. And of course, lockdown restrictions are beginning to be eased now and there may well be another wave of, of this thing. So if that happens, then all bets could be off and... They also have to consider what happens if um, players become infected. Yes. Whether that will shut the whole thing down again, or whether clubs will be expected to to play on even if somebody tests positive in their squad. Yeah, I mean, that's so a... There's, there's a long there's a long way to go and a lot more to be decided. I think. Yeah, that's a point we've made several times over the weeks on here, isn't it? Um, what happens if one team has a few players infected and the other one is? A clean bill of health, and I noticed in Germany over the weekend, one of their football teams in, in their equivalent yeah. of Division Two or the Championship had had players test positive, so they've now had to sit out for a fortnight and um, in quarantine or self isolation, uh, which means that they're now two games. If things start again as planned in Germany, they're two games behind again already, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, obviously their their opponents as well will be two games behind so that's three teams behind the rest of the pack you know before a ball's been kicked again 
But I did yeah. see to, I did see today as well that the government are talking about extending the furloughing scheme, which may offer some relief for rugby league clubs at least. That, that that's going to go on a bit further down the line now. Um, yeah, that's that should ease some now, of the pressure, it? hopefully. Yeah, that's until August now, and I know that clubs were concerned that 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 might be might be reduced or um, or scrapped after June. So they'll they'll be they'll be very relieved to um, to hear that that hasn't been. Most clubs now have got players on staff on on furlough. Yeah. As far as I know, every club. I'm, I'm not sure whether there are any ex- exceptions. Certainly, all the clubs that we cover are, and that's. Um, that's helping protect jobs, and there is a there is a, a great concern that um, if the sport was um, was to um, to lose that option, the furlough option, and um, there's still no income coming in, then inevitably cuts, permanent cuts would have to be made. There's already talk of players' contracts having to be reduced and maybe lowering the salary cap. So this is going to have a huge bearing on the sport for not just this season, but for, for a long time to come. Yes. Shall we talk about something a little bit more cheerful? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if we're to, um, to our listener if we're, we're repeating ourselves. Yes, I know we have to get we have to get it out of the way, don't we? Developing is there, so um, no, we we have in terms of history and public record, we do have to get it out of the way each week, and it's yeah, you know, it's, it's sad that we haven't got anything contemporary to talk about in that in regards of the action and cup runs or whatever, but. Uh, but you know that 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 is the latest situation um, with regard to the sport, and it seems to be changing all the time, either through government influence or through the game itself. So, I'm sure we'll still have plenty to talk about in the weeks to come. But yes, as we said last week, we were planning to have a little chat about some of our favourite overseas players at uh, our three local clubs that we've seen play down the years. Yeah. I think that's an interesting topic because it, it something that goes hand in hand with rugby league, really. Yes. Not quite since the sport started, but since sort of nineteen oh seven when the um, the old golds, the first touring team from New Zealand, came over. Uh, known as the old golds, um, ironically because they were a, a, a paid team, professional team, they came over. Some of their players stayed and made appearances for English clubs and since then it's it's carried on there's been occasional spells when then there's, a, there's been a ban on um, on overseas players and obviously we've got a quota now but but they've been part of the the makeup of rugby league really for for over a century and we've been lucky enough to to see some I think some great overseas players playing yeah. for uh, the clubs in our patch I mean I've I just jotted a a few names down. Um, in terms of Castleford, I've I've only sort of looked at more recent um, more recent players and, and ones I've seen play. But I mean, Tawera Nikau, yeah, you'd have to say would would be up there in the the sort of the nineteen nineties. The the Kiwi, yeah. really quality loose forward, very classy player. Um, somebody who who was a success at test level as well as um, as club level um, uh, one of my favorite players of recent years Brad Davis um, halfback who was um, an Aussie who 
went around in the low divisions for a while, um, had a spell at Wakefield, but became a, a real favourite at Castleford in the early years of, of Super League, um, yeah. at the start of the Super League era, and then um, helped them, I, I believe he helped them out of um, out of the what's now the championship at, at the first attempt and, and came out of retirement the following year to try and keep them up. He was a he had pace, he was um, a smart player, real fans' favourite. I mean, Adrian Vowles, you'd have to, to mention as overseas players. The Aussie who was um, Man of Steel for um, Winnercast player in 1999. Yeah. Uh, Queensland state of, state of Origin player came over and found it tough at first in a, in a struggling cast team, but really became a, a leader and a, another hugely popular player. Um, despite later going on and, and having spells at Leeds and, and Wakey, but still a, a big favourite and he's popular whenever he comes over to um, to visit Cass and to, to catch up with old friends. There's people like um, Ryan McGoldrick, who, who was a big influence um, until a few few years ago as in, in um, an improving... Castleford side, Goldie was was the sort of player that could start a fight in an empty room, <laughs> very um, yeah. feisty, I think you'd say. But an, another real, real yeah. character, and Goldie quite well off the field, and and a good bloke. And it's been, uh, it's just been a privilege to to watch players like that. More more recent times, I mean, at them, you've obviously there's um, you'd have to say Rangi Chase in terms yes, of skill, yeah. he could do things that I've never seen anybody else Some do with player, him. Yeah. Rugby ball, yeah. I mean, obviously he had um, there were other issues with um, with Rangi, which held him back. You'd have to say a little bit, but but some of the skill he had was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And um, at the moment, I think Grant Millington's been as as good a forward as there is in the competition over a, a long period of time, given great service to um, to Castleford and has sort of been part of the engine room of, of the team that Daryl Powell's built up over the last few years and have, have become one of the most formidable sides in um, in Super League. So that's just a, that's just a few sort of off the top of my head of um, Castleford overseas players who I've particularly enjoyed watching. Certainly, well, funnily enough, the very first name I wrote down for Castleford was Tuera Nikau as well. Mm. <laughs> His first, first guy who came to me, um, you know, echo everything you'd say about him. And Adrian Vowles, of course, as well. Um, probably in the end with Adrian, you, you may have even forgotten he was an overseas player. He became so associated with Castleford yeah. and absorbed himself into the club and town. You know, that when he went home, it was quite... You know, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking he was a local. Um, mm, great servant. Yeah. Um, Ryan McGoldrick was another one I, I'd noted down. I always enjoyed watching Goldie. Um as you say, a bit of a flyer player character. Um, Fran O'Bottica, he wasn't at Cass for long, but um, went on, I think, to Wigan and also, obviously, a New Zealand All Black in the other code. So, just a genuine, all-round brilliant rugby player, I think, Bottica. Mm, yeah, um, came, from, came from Wigan. Uh, was it the other way around? Apologies, yeah, from yeah, Wigan first, to Cass. I think it's yeah. first year of... This year, I think of, of Super League, but um, one of the great goal kickers. Yes, Robotica, no doubt about that. Just one, I think it's just one season with with Cass. But it yeah, was, yes, yeah. Play. yeah. 
I, I misread that. I think I, I assumed he did one year at Cass and then went to Wigan, but it, it, you're right, it was the other way around. And R Richie Blackmore, another centre, mm -hmm. I enjoyed yep. watching down the down the years as well. Yeah, another one who played for both Leeds and um, Leeds and Cass. Yes. Cass and yeah, and um, well, Vowles and Davis played for Wakey as well, didn't they? They they moved yeah. around a bit as well, so yeah, they all seem to do the little circuit, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's it's surprising how much so many players um, players have done that. Yeah, yeah. What you're um you're a Wakey fan. Who would you um pick out as as Trinity or Trinity Wildcats um, top overseas players? Yeah, I mean, my criteria kind of because I don't obviously see as many games as yourself and do try and see Wakey when I can. Was guys I'd seen in the flesh really playing for Wakefield. Um, so that ruled out the, probably the greatest one of all, Wally Lewis. I, I was away at school when Wally came to town, um, and although it was only ten games, it's ten games yeah. no Wakefield fan I'd ever forget, I'm sure. And one of the all-time great rugby league players. Yeah. Um, but two, two from the grand final in '98, um, Matt Fuller and Josh Bostock. Um, Matt had been at Wakefield before and came back and captained the side under Andy Kelly that went up after that thrilling win over Featherstone in the grand final. And uh, somebody who's always spoken very highly of his time at Wakefield and a, and a real influence on and off the field and still comes back now. I think he came back to the reunion the other year, didn't he? Yeah, I Again. believe he did, yeah. And Josh Bostock, partly because he's probably the tallest rugby player I've ever seen. He was an absolutely <laughs> huge man, Josh. And he scored two tries in that grand final, but also a little... Funny aside, when I worked at the Wakefield Express, um, Ted Richardson, who you remember, the old Wakefield chairman, got in touch uh, to see if anyone could provide Josh with a bed because he was too big for the beds in his digs. And Ted, thinking on his feet, got in touch with the local paper um, to see if someone could provide him with a bed. So we did a story and somebody made him a bed, especially Josh. <laughs> but, yeah, he was... well. Wasn't so much as Bill, but he was just incredibly tall, wasn't he? Really tall player, Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, Michael Carkidis, a, a hard-working prop. I always liked Cork. He always gave of his best. Um, you know, plenty of go forward in him and always gave gave his all for Wakefield. He had a couple of spells at the club as well. Yeah, also, Cork, also played for... Um, for Cass, and the thing I remember about him, um, I'm sure Wakey fans listening to this will as well, was a, a playoff tie at Hull in, um, would it have been 2004, where Wakey were losing at half-time, and right after half-time he had, went on a thunderous run and it lifted the team, and um, yes. Shane McNally, and they, they went on to um, to win that game. That's that's one thing I remember about Corky Das. Yes, I think I was at that game actually for the Express. But he, yeah, he he was he just he, he was one of these once he got on a rumble that you know the crowd would get behind him and that and that yeah. seemed to then lift him, uh, you yeah. know, and he he get you know go the extra yard as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the current crop, uh, David Fafita, obviously the big bopper. He's he's somebody again who gets fans going and off their seats yeah. and gets the terrace bouncing and. and the way that he pings through defences, and you know, again, he, 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 classic built like a prop forward, but he can move like a winger, can't he? David is is cracking player. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the sort again, the sort of guy who brings publicity to the club because he's one of those that all 
rugby league fans know, so you know that can only be good for Wakefield too. Yep. Um, probably the best overseas player I've I've seen, but I I, I won't vote in number one for the reasons I'll outline in a minute. But David Solomona, uh, superb player, old silky hands himself, <laughs> seemed to produce offloads out of absolutely nothing. And a, a real key influence again for Wakefield. Really used to enjoy watching Sol play. Uh, very quiet man, it seemed. But you know, he never seemed to say much off. Sorry, on the field. But you know, he's, he's one of these. His actions were louder than. Yes, sir, and, I think uh, that's right. And I mentioned too. Uh, um, I'm sure you'll mention him as well. His old mate Ali Lawatiti, who came to Wakefield for a while as well, and always played another sort of almost basketballer. <laughs> With his quick hands and the way he used to move the hand, the ball around or carry it in one hand or whatever, and always had a smile on his face, Ali. I was yeah. en- I was enjoyed watching him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my favourite, probably overseas Wakefield player, although I don't think he himself would say he would be the greatest, would be Justin Dimitrio, JD, Jason Dimitrio, even. Jason Dimitrio. Sorry. Yeah. Apologies. <laughs> Give him a great build up and got his name wrong. Sorry, JD. <laughs> the perils of live uh, podcasting. But, yeah, no, seriously, I mean, what a great guy he was off the field. He, he couldn't do enough for yourself as a, as a newspaper reporter or for the club. And on it, you know, just a, a tremendous influence on, on the team and on the players. Uh, somebody else who always gave 100%. Came from Widness, and I believe... He himself said he, he was thinking of packing the game in, but his wife mm. persuaded him to give it a go at Wakefield. And, um, you know, how glad he was that he did, you know. And, uh, you know, really a good guy and a great player. Um, you know, hard as again, nails bit... as well. Sorry? Not, not hard as nails yeah. as well. Not, not an, uh, uh, a nasty type hard no. man, but just playing through all sorts of injuries and always got back up again and yes. and yeah f- fantastic influence on um, on Wakefield in, in that particular era under um, sort of the, the start of the John Keir era and just before that yeah well he got in the dream team didn't he when Wakefield players never got in the dream team and mm-hmm. I think he was shortlisted for the Man of Steel as well and uh, when the sad death of Adam Watini uh, held the club together well then as well. and Yeah. Uh, you know, great ambassador at that period, sad period for the club as well as, as the good times as well. Yeah, and um, somebody we're going to hear a lot more of in the future as a as a coach. I think we've mentioned on this podcast before, he's um, he's heading for big things as a, as yes. a um, top NRL coach. Um, it'd be nice to see him back over here coaching at some stage, but um, he's it's going to be in charge of Brisbane Broncos next year, and, and really is very highly rated over there. Yes, yeah. And, well, it started off over at Keithley here, didn't he? Coaching. Yes. And then, uh, I think, in fact, I think when I was checking up on Carky, I think Carky had a little spell under him at Keithley as well. Yeah, I um, think he did. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, JD would get my vote uh, just for his all round. Yeah, person, personality, and ability. Um, yeah, great, great player. Um, Leeds wise, um, I it's very difficult because Leeds Leeds have always, yeah. had, as I said, right back to the to the early twentieth um, century, always had 
overseas players um a lot of them you have to you have to go by reputation eric harris the the club's leading try scorer um 10 seasons at least averaged a, a try per game throughout his time apparently was an absolutely brilliant winger an australian um there's people like vic hay um around the same era another australian um Slightly more recently, um, just post-war, Arthur Clues, who um, who came over and, and made his home in Leeds, and and um, a very popular figure at the club, and and um, was a, a real old-fashioned hard man forward, very very tough player, but very skillful player as well. Yeah. From, from what I've been told, um, obviously there the were Leeds were at the forefront when. Um, Aussie players started to come back over in the in the eighties on often on short term contracts. I remember when Eric Growth signed for Leeds, who was the best winger in the world at the at the time and, and just a huge superstar and remember all the fuss that caused um, when when he came over and didn't have a, a very long stint at um, at the club but um, was just just an excitement machine. It, it'd have been even better if anyone had ever passed to him. But um, <laughs> boy, he, he scored virtually a try a game in difficult conditions, and, and was a, a great sign. People like Et Andrew Ettingshausen around um, around the same time. The great Cliff Lyons, who was as talented a, a, a ball handling player, a, a creative player. You'll you'll ever see. Um, more recently in the Super League era, there have been some some cracking overseas players. Brent Webb, Superman, as he was known yeah. to the fans, who sort of changed the way fullbacks play in Super League a little bit more, a lot more of a, a sort of a, a standoff, extra standoff type player. Um, he was fantastic for Leeds. Danny Baderas, one of the best players of the modern era, had had three seasons at Leeds was affected by injury and, and didn't really show his best until his final season in 2011, but played a huge role when Leeds won, um, first got to the grand final from fifth spot that year and then, yeah. uh, then won it. And he was a, he was a good bloke as well, a real good influence off the field, but tremendous player. Um, Ali Lawatiti, you've, you've mentioned and will be one of my favorite players. He was just what a player, real character, really, really nice bloke, <laughs> um, quite quiet off the, off the field, um, but just devastating with the way he his power and his size, the fact he could carry the ball in one hand offload to anybody. I remember him coming off the bench uh, in a, 2004 or 2005 in a game at, um, at Wakefield, scoring five tries, which yeah. was... A record for a Super League forward and for a, a substitute. Just on his day, absolutely un, unstoppable. And it was great to see him when he went to Wakefield. He was he was just as good for um, for Wakefield in different circumstances. Obviously, um, not in a team that was particularly challenging for honours, but he was he was absolutely fantastic yes. for both clubs. Um, I, if I had to pick a. a pick someone just in terms of, of impact and an influence it might be a bit, bit of a surprise but I'm, I'm going to say Kylie yeah. Lula, who um, is 
probably the most successful overseas player in Leinster's history and made more appearances than anyone and was such a huge influence from um, from 2007 right through to 2015 when um, when he retired um, we all thought that that maybe he'd gone on a year too long. He was playing short spells in 2015, and after the grand final, it turned out that um, he'd got a heart complaint, and that's why he wasn't playing long spells. But he'd not yeah. made not made that known, and he, he was still just as effective um, playing sort of 10 minutes rather than, than 20 or, or whatever, and just a real hard forward, gave everything he'd got every game, um, top bloke as well and just the sort of person if you were on the opposition and, and you had to run at him or had him running at you you'd, you'd be quaking in your boots yeah. I don't know if you saw the um, Rob Burrow Jamie Jones Buchanan game at the start of the season when Leeds played Bradford <laughs> yeah. I think um, I know what you're going Kylie, to say. <laughs> well, yeah, Kylie came on as a as a dad legends from both teams playing in the last ten minutes, and Kylie came on for the last few minutes, and one of the Bradford youngsters <laughs> made the um, made the great mistake of running at him, and Kylie absolutely flattened him. Yeah, um, and he was saying afterwards that he'd he'd had basically five years of not been able to do that to anyone <laughs> and it, it all came um, it all came out and, uh, I, I watched that game that was shown on Sky fairly recently during the lockdown and you can actually at one stage he goes a bit high and gives a penalty away and there's a there's a nice bit of banter with um, with between him and the referee Ben Thaler you can actually hear on the audio Ben Thaler um, a couple of moments later saying Kylie, try not to kill anyone this time. Yeah. Um, just, just he's just a terrific, um, terrific presence in, in the squad. Really good bloke, and um, I, I'd have him as, as right up there at all near the top of my uh, overseas players list. Maybe not the the best in terms of skill, you'd say, but in yeah. terms of influence, certainly right up there. Yeah, I think. Well, Kylie's on my list as well for Leeds players. I've enjoyed watching the overseas ones. And uh, I think part of that incident as well, I was watching that on the on the TV when Kylie flattened the Bradford lad. And I think one of the commentators said, Kylie does know this is just a testimonial and a bit of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? And everybody was laughing in the in the commentary box about it. Well, the, um, the others, when they came on, all basically looked like old players who'd... who'd just dusted the boots off, didn't they? But, yeah. You know, Kylie could, Kylie could have, uh, he could have played Super League. He, he looked like he was just in absolutely fantastic shape, and just that sort of that sort of bloke. He'll he'll look and be like that in twenty years' time. I've, I've no doubt. I think that's the thing with him. If you saw him on the TV, he doesn't look the world's biggest man in terms of modern day rugby league forward, but he's just obviously. <laughs> 100% solid muscle, isn't he? He's like hitting a brick wall, you know, and you'd imagine if he was six foot seven or five foot four, he'd play the game in exactly the same way and absolutely strong <laughs> yeah. as an ox, you know. Yeah. Um, other guys, you know, we've mentioned Ali, obviously, again, and just bringing back memories of him just had me smiling to myself because that's how I always think of him as a really cheerful guy who, who played the game almost for love, didn't he, really? And all the fans loved him, and you know, 
as you say, again, he did a great job at, at Wakefield as well. Yeah, and another uh, overseas player, could have probably mentioned him during the uh, Wakefield round at Willie Poaching, a good hard-working um, forward and, you know, a good, good offloader as well. And again, a guy who uh, made himself at home at Wakefield, you know, and, and went, then got his deserved move to Leeds and carried on the good work there. Brent Webb, as you said, um, fantastic fullback, and the number of other players down the years who've said afterwards what a great influence he was on the team and what a great player he was probably speaks much more than, than I could for him. But yeah, when he hit the line at pace, he, he caused all sorts of chaos for Leeds, didn't he? He um, did, yeah. <laughs> Kylie, as we've said, and, and finally Scott Donald. I always thought I liked Scott, he was always a good finisher. Uh, not the biggest of wingers, but he, he knew how to score a try, and I always like watching Scott play. I think that's a good um, that's a good shout. Scott Donald scored one of the the great um, Challenge Cup final try. Uh, sorry, not Challenge Cup final grand final tries. Yes. in two thousand seven against Saints as as well. Real quality finisher. Yeah, um, pacey. Uh, I think he he joined the um, police force in Australia when he when he. Finished playing. I believe he was over here um, at the last time we had we had a World Cup in this country when there was a Police World Cup as as well. So he's, he was still playing in those days. But yeah, quality finisher, good player. Yeah. Okay then, Peter. Well, I certainly enjoyed that trip down memory lane. Um, some good memories there. Some great players. Um, nice to to remember them and the contribution they've made to our game. Um, Absolutely. I don't know if you'd call him an overseas player, but the one other foreign, for want of a better word, player that I'd always wish I'd seen live but I never did was Jonathan Davis, who uh, I thought was a fantastic player. I know he's from Wales, so he would he would class himself as coming from abroad, I suppose, Jonathan, ardent Welshman, isn't he? So, uh, but, yeah. but I thought he was a, a British, to my regret that I never saw him playing either code. I've seen him on the telly loads, but... I never actually got to see him in the flesh, but I used to think he was a fantastic player. Yeah. Well, that's actually that's a, a topic maybe we could discuss in um, in future podcasts, great rugby union converts. Because, yes, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, there's certainly been a few. Obviously, it doesn't happen so much now, but um, over the years, I think certainly Leeds and Wakey have both had some, um, some very notable ex rugby yes. union um, players on board. Yeah, that's a good idea. We could uh, we could mention that in the future. Okay then, Peter. Well, thanks once again for your time. I think we'll wrap it up there for now. And, Thank you, uh, Richard. Just keep you posted each week as to what's going on in the game at the moment and then maybe have a trip back down memory lane and look at other famous games and players from down the years. Well, that's all for now anyway. Thanks again to Peter for his time and we'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.